Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a comedy politics podcast that, had I been smarter over the last three years, I would have tried harder to tune into the popular public domain more by just shouting, punch yourself in the face for an hour every week before advising you blame your injuries on someone from another country. This is the pre-election episode, I'm Tiernan Duyeb and look, this week I'm eschewing elaborate descriptions of politicians as is the norm on this show, as now is not really the time to dwell on how, say, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson looks and moves like a stop-motion bread bin filled with sick, or how Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn resembles a face drawn on your big toe peering out of a hole in your sock, or how Lib Dem leader Joe Swinson is clearly the Jar Jar Binks of politics, how SNP leader Nicola Sturgeon is a walking advert for cold Bovril, and how Brexit Party leader Nigel Farage is a sort of tragic case that a classical horror writer would have created before realising no one would have empathy towards something so disgusting. Clyde Kimry leader Adam Price would just really like a minute of your time to ask who your energy provider is, and how Sean Berry and Jonathan Bartley of the Green Party look like the kind of people that would make you walk the long way home just so you could avoid having to hear about how amazing their kids are. No, no it's not the time for that. Instead, with just mere days, until the election, we have just enough time to really ask ourselves as a nation what it is we want for the next five years and how to justify that in ourselves considering that likely it's pretty racist and massively stupid. And for those of you listening outside the UK, you have very little time at all to be practising what sort of laugh you'll be doing at us, knowing that you live somewhere where people at least pretend to like each other enough not to starve. Those of you in the US, of course, are looking across the pond at us, hoping that finally you can pass the baton of most stupid political situation over to us on Friday, despite many of you not actually looking at us, but at France, which you think is the same country. These are unprecedented times, where the country faces two exactly similar, basically the same choices with nowhere to go. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? It's basically the same choice twice, isn't it? I mean, it's like choosing between twins or eggs or leaves or any of the contestants on one of those shows where people dance and eat insects at the same time or something. On the one hand, for example, you have a party presenting almost socialism, or as much as the UK might perceivably handle without losing its shit, a political ideology that says capitalism is incompatible with fairness, equality and human rights. On the other, basically, obviously exactly the same hand, like two of the same hand in an awkward glove-buying situation, um, basically the same, you have a party presenting capitalism, which says, yes, it is compatible with all those things, providing you pay for it with money that will never, ever let you have. That's a tricky choice, isn't it? It's a tricky choice. It's a two, two of the same pie, uh, two, two of the same hat. But of course, I'm just giving an overview, and when you look into the nitty-gritty of the shitty, you can see exactly why the nation is in moral turmoil, and has been for some time. The governing party has spent the last nine years sucking the life out of society like how a hungry vampire would gorge on the vein of Dominic Raab's root vegetable head. There's been nearly a decade of austerity and unnecessary political belief based on the notion that people are shit and therefore deserve to have a shit time, while other people definitely aren't shit and deserve to pump cocaine into their eyes and eat white rhino soup into their mouths while purposefully breaking wind near trees in order to kill them off quicker. Homelessness has increased, though to be fair that may also be the fault of all those people unable to find houses that haven't been built. Child poverty has increased, though that's their fault for not being old enough to get jobs. 
Food bank usages have gone from hundreds to millions, so clearly it's all those chances you've realised there's no point in buying your own food and eating properly with all that money you don't have, when you could scoff a whole dented tin of chickpeas that some kind-hearted soul dropped off on their way out of the shop, thinking it was the bin. Councils have sold off everything they own, but hey, I guess it's not like they used it properly. I mean, libraries with books in? Come on, that's so last century. That space is now much better used by a rich diplomat who never visits except for when they want to block some different disabled spaces for once. The NHS is a breaking point, but if it was any good, it'd just heal itself, right? I mean, come on, how crap are those nurses and doctors? You know, the ones that are still there anyway, that have worked for 12 weeks straight, kept alive only by neon lights and awareness that they mustn't trip over people lying in the corridors. Oh well, at least when the US buy it, there'll be giant Disney mascots to cheer everyone up over the screaming. Crime has risen, which is a good sign of just how caring and careful the government are in how they influence kids, you know, only showing them vicious cuts that ruin people's lives. Schools are so depleted that many require parents to buy kids their own pencils, but they're likely to chew those pencils, so I guess that saves the school or their parents having to supply them with food they can't afford as well. There was the hostile environment policy and Windrush scandal that cared about BAME people and foreign nationals so much they tried to send them to countries where people might actually respect them. Refugees, don't worry, nothing will protect you from the horrors you've escaped, like us keeping you in a detention centre where no one will get to you, not even friends, family, journalists or human rights. There was the bedroom tax, which rightly questioned how dare people have a whole extra room to keep all their medical supplies or carers or family in when they could rightly squeeze up a bit and push their entire bodies into an air vent or boot of a car and stop being so selfish. Universal Credit has done wonders for people who, previously needing money to survive, are now being given a top training course in Bear Grylls-style survival. Who needs to go to another island? Lucky you. Oh, and then there was that whole referendum that happened to solve in-party disputes. But actually, I think you'll find that it's brought everyone together in despair and rage, so it was clearly the right thing to do. Now, we just have to get it done, like you might buy a car by walking past it and saying, that's my car, that is, and then not doing anything else, because it's clearly now yours. The pound has plummeted, but hey, I guess it'll make a nice plinky sound when it lands. And anyway, that just means that all those foreign types can afford to come over so we can tell them to fuck off to their faces. Wage growth has stagnated since before 2010, but who's working to live, right? If you enjoy what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, which is why the Conservatives have made sure none of you enjoy your six zero-hour jobs that you juggle, as otherwise you'd be a non-working shirker. No one wants that. And sure, they've done very little to help the environment, but hey, you can't trust air you can't see, can you? Who better to be in charge of the country than a leader you know you can't trust, so that saves you being disappointed when nothing he said comes to fruition? Sure, there's been evidence of his racism for years now, but at least that means no one will get a nasty surprise as photos of him wearing blackface emerge from years gone by, as we'll just assume he does that for the opening of Parliament, and so all his illegitimate kids won't recognise him. His record of spending all that money not building a bridge or on a water cannon he couldn't use or allegedly giving it to a tech entrepreneur he was sleeping with or losing £5 million he was given to tackle homelessness but didn't use it for that, that all just shows he's one of us, a normal person that's shit with money and can't help a bit of retail therapy. How many of us haven't wanted to have a journalist beaten up or burn money in front of a homeless person to keep them warm? I mean, who else can we trust to get Brexit done than a man who resigned to stop it happening, then voted for the deal he resigned over, and then brought back the same deal but worse, and said it was better, and is now denying it will cause customs checks between the UK and Northern Ireland, even though it will, which goes against all EU guidelines in the deal, meaning we're likely to Brexit for the rest of our lives, or crash out in a no deal, and then Johnson will use the last remaining money Britain has to buy a bouncy castle in the shape of tits, and roll around on it while people hunt for water. I mean, what about that wouldn't you want? So, there's that choice of more of the same, which sounds great as we all fear change. Or if you're a weirdo, there's basically anything else. And why would you choose that when we've all been so, so happy for the last 10 years? I mean, I can barely get down my street for people leaping over broken lampposts with joy, shouting things like, I really enjoy how expensive food is, or, oh, isn't it brilliant how shit all the trains are, or, if I could, I'd pay even more for university, but I can't because of its already ludicrous costs. Don't forget, though, the anything else includes a party who've been condemned for not tackling anti-Semitism, and that may rightly put you off voting for them if you're concerned about racism for the first time in the last nine years, and you're generally worried that there's not been enough. So it's best to vote for the party who does all of the racism and is actually proud of it, like a true Brit. No, of course, I'm not saying one type of racism is better than the other, just that if I had the choice about not caring about Jewish people, I'd also definitely want the three-in-one deal of being able to vilify Muslims and continue deporting British black people as well. Don't forget, the anything else includes nationalising services that have been run brilliantly for years now, if you're the CEO of the company that runs it, or another country. Who on earth wants to put things back in the public's hands when they'll probably just get it dirty or give it a disease? Ugh. 
Don't forget, the Anything Else includes a plan for social care, an attempt to curb climate changes, funding for schools and hospitals, and all sorts of shit like that, which is just people-pleasing, isn't it? I mean, who on earth wants to please people? They're awful. I mean, surely that makes it easier for you to realise that what we need is a government that wouldn't be off-brand if they announced a policy that involved someone turning up to your house, telling you you're a piece of shit, and then poking your child in the eye with a pointed stick. Of course. That's not the only choice, you know, the two parties that are basically the same. There's also all the other basically the same parties where you could vote to take things back to 2016 when they were okay, but only had nearly as many people in poverty and not quite as many on the streets, but with the added horror of no Brexit, which means everyone would have to find something else to talk about and then realise they're just inherently horrible and it was nothing to do with politics all along. Then there's the other same party where they want independence for Scotland, which is stupid as that's like saying it's its own country with its own views and demand for different things to Westminster. Weird. Then there's the other same party who'd like to protect the planet, which is stupid as if the planet needs protection, it should pay for it like everyone else. G4S could probably do a contract and then forget to send anyone to do it. It'd be great. Then there's the other same same party who'd like more people to speak Wales-ish, which is stupid when no one else in England does. And then there's the other party who are like the main same party but a knockoff version like buying that Irish cream instead of a Baileys, but for hate and despair. So it's a big choice between all those parties that are basically the same. Do you hold your nose and vote for one who won't give you everything you want just because you're an individual and they have to represent more than just one person? Or maybe you spoil your ballot because you're so angry at the system you'd prefer it to remain exactly as it is and you want everyone to see how well you drew a cock and balls. And what message does all of this give our kids, the next generation, as they witness those older than them making the decisions for the planet that they'll have to live on and probably swim on every day once we're long gone? Well, actually, it's all been for them, as all those years of othering, a lack of empathy, vitriol and lying should numb all the children so well that they'll have no qualms or trauma about pushing the boomers off the lifeboats in order to survive when climate disasters kick in. I can't tell you who to vote for, I can't tell you what to do, I'm not your dad. Even if I am your dad and you're my daughter, you're too young to vote, so take off that fake moustache and stop trying, you'll get arrested. What I can tell you is to remember that when you go to vote, remember, you're just doing it for yourself. Fuck everyone else and their needs, it's vitally important that we help a pathologically mendacious egotist fulfil a completely unfeasible and impossible promise that is in only three words, so you know, it sounds nice. And of course, whatever happens, remember, it won't be your fault. It'll be someone else's. It's always someone else's. Good luck and see you on the other side, which is a cliff edge, and we can writhe on the rocks below, blaming each other for not doing more to stop our descent. Hello, uh, a bit of a different intro this week, wasn't it? Uh, as you can tell, I'm feeling really hopeful about the results and I just thought it was pointless telling you things like Johnson said the naughtiest thing he'd ever do was cycling on the pavement, even though it was likely he was on his way to lie to the Queen or on a bus. Uh, but everyone's moral compass is different and some, like Boris's, are broken with no discernible way to read it. What was it you said today? Oh yeah, that he vows to stop EU migrants being able to treat Britain as their own. And I'm guessing he'll do that by selling it all to the US. But yeah, I mean that all seems useless when there's just a few days to go. Everyone knows what he's like, everyone knows what Corbyn's like and what uh, you know Joe Swinton's like. We all know what the people are like and what their parties are like. We've got all their manifestos. All you can actually do right now is speak to your Conservative voting friends and relatives. Um, not to persuade them to vote another way, but just let them know that they'll be the first to get eaten when the purge starts and then let them mold that over. I am, of course, uh, assuming the worst, but then that's because uh, if it's anything less than that, I'll feel slightly better about it. It's a sort of preventative pessimism, if you like. Um, But there's glimmers of sense, there's glimmers of hope, aren't there? I did a gig on Friday in the constituency where Jeremy Hunt has been voted in every consecutive election since 2005. Um with Virginia Bottomley before him and the crowd made a very disappointed groaning noise when I brought up his name with general consensus being that they fucking hate him so you know you never know but that is one gig in one place and what you have to remember is that haha Johnson is a character and you'd want to go to the pub with him uh, wouldn't you would you I mean really he constantly promised to get you a pint it would never ever appear it'd be awful and then he'd tell you the same stories over and over again at least in comparison Corbyn doesn't drink so it'd be a bloody cheap round so look um, thanks for listening to this week's show Uh, as I said it's a bit different to the other weeks because I don't know what to do when there's only a couple of days left I know you've only got a limited time uh, to listen to this before we've crossed the political Rubicon and yes I will try and bring a mini episode out on Friday if I can and some sort of shambles next week and then hopefully I'll give this show a rest for a couple of weeks um, though I've heard politics force here Nostradamus may make his annual appearance if he has anything at all to predict from whatever lies in the wreckage other than that though uh, thank you to Dan for donating to the Kofi and to Joe for becoming a Patreon patron and let it 
it be known that all your funds are definitely not going towards the booze and caffeine I'll be inhaling on election night, and you'll no doubt be able to see the effect it's not having on my Twitter feed. If you'd like to add to that pile of liquid stimulants, then please chuck me a few quid at either carrier-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, both links of which are in the podcast blurb. Oh, and shout out to the excellent Una for her lovely mention on the very funny Twitter. Do give her a follow at OKKeating. And please do give us a shout too if you do liking the things that we do. If you do liking the things what I do doing. Uh, also, I've popped a link in the pod blurb uh, to an article I wrote last week about my thoughts on how this election will affect kids in terms of the examples we're setting. Uh, not financially, uh, obviously, which also will be terrible, but I didn't have the brain power to write about that as well. And to cheer you up uh, completely adversely to everything else I'm doing, I've also popped a link to the election that St. Gregory CEVP school in Suffolk did, um, which is basically the most adorable thing you'll ever see. Uh, probably made me like weep and go, oh, this is just so beautiful. And it basically just further proves that we should have children running things instead of men who act like children. So, on this week's show, I'm interviewing writer Christine Berry on how we handle things in this election if they don't go as we expect, and also if they do. Plus, there's a little bit in the middle about press coverage and a few of my own thoughts, as if you don't get enough of those already. Here we go. If you, like me, pay any attention to polls, predictions and the general way in which most people don't pay attention and like really hollow slogans, it's looking like Friday will be a Conservative majority result, leading to five years of very hard Brexit, a government that will lie about everything and deny it, Johnson tumbling around like a blubbery tumbleweed and his cabinet doing more of that stupid leg stance where it's like a small horse disappeared just as they got on it. At the least worst, it'll be a hung parliament, which means one to two more years of political cock blocking, avoiding the terrible but also ignoring the other terrible because there's no time for it. Sure, I'm skirting over many, many awful things, but what we do know is that no one will be happy apart from maybe a handful of people who'll be temporarily happy for about five minutes until they realise what they've done. Still, stability, eh? Even if what's now stable is the constant instability. But supposing it doesn't happen like that? You never quite know in today's world, and there is the remote chance it will play out in a way that means we end up with a coalition of Labour and the SNP, or Labour and the Lib Dems, or Labour the SNP and the Lib Dems, or Labour the SNP and Lib Dems, and one little green, or maybe a minority Labour government, or maybe last minute we'll just get invaded by aliens and absolutely none of it will matter, and we'll all breathe a big sigh of relief. And if you do suppose those things, well, not the last one, obviously, then why not delve into what that would be like, a little what if, if you like. Even if that's not your preferred outcome uh, of a Labour government, it's very useful to seriously consider what an alternative system might be like for the country you live in. Uh, You know, pass a hyperbole of it suddenly supposedly being a haven for communist terrorist pacifists whose love for both peace and violence cancels themselves out and they mostly sit around drinking strong tea. And if it is your preferred outcome and it doesn't happen, how do you deal with the notion and feeling that no one else wants what you do? If, unlike me, you don't have that feeling on an absolute daily basis, that is. How do you pick yourself up and work out how, in five years' time, you go through it all again? This week, I spoke to Christine Berry. Christine is the co-author of People Get Ready, Preparing for a Corbyn Government, a book on what, in practice, Corbyn's reordering of British politics would entail and how much hostility there would be from the establishment towards it. In her career, Christine has been a parliamentary researcher, director of policy and government at the New Economics Foundation, and most recently was head of policy and research at Share Action. I spoke to her all about what would happen, how things might change, how those who've campaigned deal with it not happening, and what exactly those aliens might demand. Sorry, not the last one, but I do think about that quite a lot. So, uh, just a heads up, firstly, obviously, I know some of you listen to this aren't Labour fans, I know some of you are absolutely opposite of Labour fans, but I think this is genuinely interesting when we've had a certain way of doing politics in this country for a very, very long time, and this looks at how... It would be if that all changed. Um, also, uh, I spoke to Christine just over a week ago, and I think everything we talk about is still up to date, but just to letting you know in case. Um, and most importantly, Christine is a parent of a one-year-old and yet manages to be interesting, coherent and inspiring despite a lack of sleep. And yet I'm the parent of a 20-month-old and I hadn't had any coffee, so all of my questions are very rambling uh, and not very good. Sorry. I swear it's those extra eight months of no sleep what did it. Anyway, I hope you enjoy. Here is Christine. Okay, so uh, best case scenario, December 13th, uh, Labour have won. Um, What would happen next? Um, Well, I think if Labour were to win on December the 12th, um, it would be the beginning of a really radical sea change in how our economy is organised. And I think this is something that's that's not really necessarily that widely understood or discussed very 
well in the media debate, you know, there's a lot of focus on Labour spending plans, which actually are not that far out of line with most Central European countries like France, Germany um, and, and Belgium. Um, what's a lot more interesting is how Labour are promising that they're going to almost restructure the operating system of the economy to make it more democratic. So, you know, the whole promise of Thatcherism was that it was going to empower people. We were going to be able to own our own homes through right to buy. We were going to be able to own shares through the privatised industries. But the problem was that those things were things that could be bought and sold on markets. And so rapidly they were bought and sold um, and accrued in the hands of the people with the most money, which is how you've ended up with rampant inequality. Um, and most of us actually not feeling very empowered at all, which I would argue is how you got things like Brexit. Um, and so what Labour are promising to do is to kind of radically restructure the economy along lines that actually empower people through democracy rather than through the market. So you see that with their proposals on public ownership. You know, people talk about them wanting to go back to the 70s. But actually, if you look at what they're promising to do on things like energy, water, railways, it's very different from the sort of post-1945 model of nationalisation, which was very much about kind of top-down state ownership. They're talking about local ownership, city-level community ownership, putting passengers in charge of the railways, you know, putting patients in, more in charge of the NHS, um, these kind of things. And then in the private sector, they're talking about promoting cooperatives, um, this policy called inclusive ownership funds that you might have heard of, which is about um, getting companies to set aside a certain portion of their shares into uh, a fund that would be collectively owned by their workers. So all these different kind of ways that you can make the economy more democratic and take power away from this kind of small elite that it's accrued into um, and put it back in the hands of the many. That's the idea. And I mean, and I'm, I'm a big fan of all those things. Uh, it, it, my podcast listeners know my bias. Um, it all sounds great, but, but that, those are big changes. So things would change. You know, uh, we've had the the kind of uh, sort of neoliberalism now for a very long time. Um, so, what would would we have to kind of change the way we think about things as as you know, citizens of a country where suddenly everything's working in a kind of more radical left wing way? Um, yeah, no, there would be big changes, and you know, um, I think already to a certain extent, just the existence of Corbynism has started to shift the debate around the economy. Um, so you're seeing even the Conservatives aren't really talking about austerity anymore, right? Like they're not really promising to end austerity, but they're sort of pretending that they are and they're not attacking Labour's spending plans nearly as vociferously as they were before. So I think um, the sort of common sense about how the economy should operate is starting to shift. But I think when it comes to these ideas about democratic ownership and where power should sit in the economy, we're much further behind on that. I don't think there's nearly as much um, public understanding, public debate um, about those ideas, which does worry me a bit because I think one of the lessons of our book um, and one, one of the things that um, the Thatcherites certainly understood, um, as I learned when I started looking into the history of it, was it's not enough to win an election. If you want to achieve that kind of radical change, you have to win it with a very clear mandate to do the radical things that you're saying you're going to do, because otherwise, once you get into government, uh, it it becomes very difficult to follow through on that, given the kind of extent of the powerful vested interests that you need to confront. Is, is that why, I mean, because Labour at first was sort of saying 2030, for, for example, Green New Deal, zero net carbon, and then it became maybe 2050, and then it went back to sort of 2030s. Um, but I, I guess because, again, for something like that, we'd have to completely change how flights were. There's a lot of big life changes that would have to happen. I guess it's easier. Is it easier to sort of ease people into that idea rather than make a big promise and, and, and then, you know, scare some people off with it? Yeah, I suppose that they are nervous, obviously, of making promises that they can't keep. I mean, this thing of keeping your promises, I think, is really interesting. Again, when it comes to these big transformative programs, um, another thing that, that the Thatcherites kind of understood was that it's a long game. It's a long term project. It's certainly more than one term in government. Right. Um, and so you can't do everything all at once. And I think within any movement, again, you saw this actually with, with the Attlee government as well in 1945. Um, there are always people within that movement, as they were with Thatcher, uh, as there are with Labour, that are kind of um, wanting them to go further and faster and kind of see the leaders as sellouts if they deliver anything less than everything all at once. And there are always people that are kind of urging a bit more of a cautious step by step approach. You know, we need to consolidate our gains. We need to make sure that we don't fuck ourselves and lose power. Sorry, am I allowed to swear? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, please do. OK, loads. great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, and, and we'll jeopardise the whole project if we go further. Um, so, you know, the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is a, a kind of neoliberal right wing think tank, their director didn't even vote for Thatcher um, after her first term in office. He was so disgruntled by kind of her lack of radicalism and how she hadn't gone far enough. So I think it's really important for us to remember this. It's a totally different mode for the left to operate in, basically. My whole life, the left has been really used to losing and thinking about what happens if we win and and how we kind of adopt an intelligent approach to kind of holding to account a party and government, but not just kind of immediately decrying them as sellouts if they can't do everything all at once, I think is it's a really important thing for us all to think about. And is there also uh, a concern that uh, a Labour victory, I mean, you know, we've seen the kind of media onslaught on Labour for the last three years, or in fact, the last much longer than that, <laughs> the media has yeah. been very sort of uh, hugely anti-Labour. Um you know, were they to win, even if they immediately start improving things, which, as you say, obviously things take a time, uh, a long time. Um, would we, you know, would they be accepted in terms of, of media and things like that? Or would we have to kind of understand that there would be a lot of criticism, you know, un- potentially unjust, but probably quite awful for a while? Yeah, no, I mean, so I think this is um, this is one of the main things, actually, that um, that we spend the bulk of the book looking at, looking at is not just media criticism but the kind of various forms of backlash and kind of onslaught that might occur if you if you did actually get a radical Labour government um and I think the definitely the media backlash that we've had in the last few years is just the start of it you know it's just a taste of what would be unleashed if you actually had a Labour government and again you saw this with Attlee right that like it's a quite an interesting parallel because Attlee came to power after the Second World War um, the British economy in a lot of ways was in was in quite a dire state and was struggling. And they were actually really successful in um, boosting exports uh, in this kind of export led almost industrial strategy. But obviously, those things do take time. And in the meantime, you know, the um, balance of payments carried on um, getting worse. And, and uh, the UK was having kind of balance of payments problems and kind of currency issues. And the media, not just in the UK, but also in the US, were very, very quick to point to that and be like, oh, well, there you go. You see, socialism doesn't work. Um, and I think the same would be true of Corbyn, right? He's coming to power in quite a volatile time. Like, who knows what's going to happen with Brexit? The economy is kind of faltering. There's a lot of signs globally that we might be on the brink of a downturn. And there will be a lot of people, again, on both sides of the Atlantic, I think, who are very keen to point to any kind of economic problems that the UK might face and say, you know, point the finger at at socialism and say this proves that socialism doesn't work. Um, And I mean, there are all kinds of other um, types of backlash that we might expect to face, which we can talk about if you want, you know, from the civil service to the city of London and all the rest of it. Yeah, lots to get ready for. Sure. So, so what are the other types then? Um, So so what would, what would happen in the civil service? What, why might there be a backlash against Labour from there? Um, well, so I think, again, you've seen a little taste of this, right? Uh, a little while ago, there was an anonymous civil servant that briefed that Corbyn was what too frail to be prime minister, um, which I think gave you a little sense um, of the hostility that exists among certain parts of the upper echelons of the civil service, I would say, um, who are very establishment um, to a Labour government. I think that's not necessarily the case in the more junior ranks of the civil servant service, actually. Um, they're often very progressive. Um, But I think the deeper problem also with the civil service is just the whole way that it functions, the kind of models that they use to understand the economy are are totally shaped by four decades of Thatcherism and neoliberalism. You know, for example, you know, when Philip Hammond came out with this letter saying, oh, like this, this modelling that we've done proves that it's way too expensive to tackle climate change. It's basically based on bullshit modelling um, that's totally wrong about how the economy works and doesn't take into account the, you know, the economic necessity of tackling climate change. Likewise, you know, the Treasury under George Osborne came out with some modelling about how reducing corporation tax was going to be really good for the economy because it was going to boost tax receipts, which also isn't true. But, you know, if a Labour government comes to power and is kind of reliant on not just kind of quite an establishment senior civil service, but also on this whole kind of edifice of how we think about doing policy that is fundamentally at odds with what they want to achieve. Like that's definitely something they will need to tackle. Um, and then there's a whole separate question of of the sort of economic interest that Labour is trying to take on and the power that they have to kind of be disruptive. So whilst I would argue that obviously a Labour programme along the lines that we've been talking about would be good for the economy, um, it would be bad for a certain subset of you know, what economists would call rentier interests. So these are people who don't earn their wealth by doing something useful. They earn their wealth by 
controlling an asset that they can charge other people to use. So like not just landlords, but energy companies, um, you know, owners of all uh, privatized utilities, um, tech giants, arguably, who like own um, not just our data, but the sort of highways of the Internet that increasingly we all need to use. Um, and also, you know, the epitome of this really the city of London, right, which controls the money supply. <laughs> and this is a big issue, I think, for a Corbyn government, because the UK is obviously very financialized, very open to global financial markets. And I think there is the potential uh, for that to be a source of, of disruption on kind of the currency markets or the bond markets if international investors start to kind of, um, you know, speculatively try and withdraw their money from the country either, you know, in order to destabilise the Corbyn government or because they expect certain things to happen that are going to threaten their interests. Um, that's also something that needs to be prepared for. I mean, we, we've already seen a bit of that. It wasn't, I'm sure there was a news story uh, just last week about certain energy companies moving offshore in preparation for the possibility of a Corbyn government. Right. And I think, you know, there is a certain extent to which that this is part of a deliberate strategy to, to be a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? There's a lot of kind of... Um, doom-mongering by certain interests through the media um, about kind of how far business and wealthy people will leave the country or will down tools in the event of a Corbyn government. And I think part of the aim of that is to kind of render certain parts of their programme politically impossible to deliver, um, if that makes sense. So I'm not saying it's an empty threat, but I think it is It is part of a strategy um you know, to, to make those kind of threats. But um, certainly, yeah, you may also see a certain amount of that. And like, it, yeah, some of that we can weather, right? If, if these are kind of um, essentially predatory activities that are not really contributing to the UK economy and we can replace them with more democratically organised ways of doing the same thing that actually put wealth in the hands of ordinary people rather than it being hoarded at the top, then fine, you can leave. Um, but there are, you know, <laughs> um, there are kind of, uh, certain things that might happen that that could kind of have ripple effects of, of wider kind of economic destabilization or could have impacts on ordinary people where it needs to be thought about how you're going to deal with that um, in a way that doesn't destabilize your government. So yeah, uh, considering how big these changes would be, and, and as you said, uh, quite a lot of them would take some time, does that then mean we, you know, a Labour government would need to be in power for more than one parliamentary term? Um you know, because if if they were only around for four to five years, I'm guessing a lot of the changes wouldn't be able to be implemented at that time. There'd still be a chance for, say, a conservative, a successive conservative government to then reverse things again. Yeah, absolutely. I think it would take more than one term. I think it's a two, if not a three term project. Um, and I think, you know, again, you can see that with Thatcher at the end of her first term, there was a lot of people who'd advised her that were sort of decrying the fact that she'd um, not even begun to, like, tackle um, the, the sort of big systemic changes that she needed to bring about. I think what's really interesting, an interesting way to think about these things is um, how can you make things irreversible, right? Like, how can you do things however long you have in power? And remember, Attlee only had five years, right? Like, Attlee only had one term and built the welfare state and the NHS and social housing and a lot of things that did prove very difficult to reverse. So actually, maybe I'm going to contradict myself and say, you know, maybe it's not so much about how many terms you get, but about what you do with them. And, and in that time, how you both build institutions and create a political climate that makes it very difficult for the next government to reverse what you've done. Right. Because even if you do have two or three terms, if you do things like the Labour government did with sure start centres, right, it's then very easy for a Conservative government to come in and just knock down this edifice that you've spent years painstakingly constructing by just defunding it all. Whereas the NHS, right, for decades, the Tories have wished that they could get rid of the NHS, but they just can't because people love it. Um Right. That, you know, I know that obviously it's being privatised by stealth and all the rest of it. And, and that is at stake in this election. They want to kind of do a deal with Trump that's going to sell it off. But the, the fact that they've had to do that, the fact that they've had to pursue those kind of stealth tactics and that the NHS for all its um, kind of problems is still standing is testament to the fact that it is possible, um, you know, if you're clever about it, to build something that is durable, that kind of changes the um the sort of status quo and the political landscape for, for the next generation and not just for the duration of your time in office. And I think that's what Labour, that's that's Labour's aspiration. Um, and it's a huge aspiration. And I think we all need to kind of collectively start thinking about what's required to actually achieve something that ambitious.
and what would your main tips be for you know what what just for the listeners for example you know if if uh and and i'm keeping as many things crossed as possible if if labor do sort of come out on tops on on, on the 13th or at least even in a, a you know the biggest party of a kind of a coalition or, or however it works what what would be your tips to listeners of of what they should what be what be the things that you should tell them to sort of start doing immediately um ooh, good question um i mean like definitely one lesson for me of all the examples that I've looked at on this stuff is that these kind of massive changes, um, certainly coming from the left, do require kind of mass support and a mass movement behind them um, if they're going to stick. And I think um, that mass movement has to be to a certain degree independent of the government as well, because once radical parties get into government, um, it's a it's a different kind of ball game for them from you know, being an insurgent opposition, they're subject to all kinds of pressures like the ones we've been talking about. And so I think the role of kind of the grassroots and of social movements is both to sort of popularise those ideas um, and also kind of create an environment that can push the government to the left and act as a sort of counterweight to all the forces that will be pushing it back to the right. Um, so that's all a bit abstract. I think in terms of what we can be doing now, I would say for everyone to familiarize ourselves with the Labour manifesto and not just with the manifesto but maybe some of the more interesting thinking that's been going on behind the scenes around it um, and start kind of following some of the interesting campaigns and thinkers that have contributed to that Um, and if we are out kind of doing door knocking for Labour or whatever as far as possible kind of taking the opportunity to bring the conversation back to those policies and to actually kind of try and talk to people um, about you know why these these sort of big changes are needed and understand um you know, what they care about and how we can kind of shape this political agenda together. Um, Because I think, you know, this is an agenda that will only succeed if it continues to kind of um, live and breathe and be developed from the grassroots up. And it's not just kind of something that um, can be built from the top down. I think it is on all of us um, to kind of almost take responsibility for shaping the world that we would want to see under a Labour government and then for kind of making the case for that to our family, to our friends and to people that we come into contact with in the course of our political activity. Um, the other thing I would say is is just kind of finding ways to um, to build power bases really with and in solidarity with people that are worst affected by economic injustice, right? So I think the left does need to get much better at reaching out beyond its bubbles um, and actually kind of organising with Um, You know, whether it's um, precarious workers, people in debt, um, you know, uh, people suffering from poor housing. Um, And there are all kinds of amazing kind of campaigns and social movements out there that are doing that. And they don't always link up very well with with party politics. And I think um, Labour has has started to do a good job of building some of those connections. Um, And I think for all of us to sort of take responsibility if we're doing politics for thinking about how we can do it in a way um, that, sort of involves and is in solidarity with people that are worst affected by the problems that we're trying to change, if that makes sense. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, We'll be back with Christine in a minute, but first... 
This is the last election flex section for 2019 and I was trying to figure out what might be useful to you, the listener, the individual one listener, what does listen to this. Uh, Maybe some soothing music, compliments on how your new face gloves and bum scarf really suit you. How about a list of things that could be worse? Hey, it's okay. at least a shark isn't eating your face. I mean, I hope you're not listening to this while a shark eats your face. But if it is and you are, I hope the acoustics inside a shark's mouth make my voice sound really good. Instead, I thought maybe a few notes about press coverage and then some of my own opinions, uh, because it's not as if there's been enough of those this election, is there? So, I'm not sure if you've seen it already over the last few weeks, but the clever folks at the Centre of Research in Communications and Culture at Loughborough University have conducted news audits for general elections for years. And for this one, they've been doing a weekly roundup of findings from UK-wide television coverage and newspapers. There are four big things they've noticed over the last few weeks. One is that as this election has gone on, coverage about Brexit has got less and less. You might see this as a good thing, as we've all heard for ages, Brexit, 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 with everyone getting Brexit fatigue, even though it's what they voted for. So it's a bit like that old-fashioned method of putting a kid off smoking by making them smoke an entire pack of cigarettes. And then, like a couple of friends from school, they become addicted to smoking a whole pack at once, and the whole thing goes wrong. No, stop being a good analogy. Anyway, is it a good thing, though, this lack of Brexit coverage? Well, when the main message of the Conservatives' campaign is get Brexit done, a lack of looking into exactly how they might do that, and if it's possible, doesn't feel all that dissimilar to the EU referendum. Let's leave. How? Shh. The second thing that might be of note is how little coverage the environment and environmental issues have got, despite us all, you know, living in it and needing it. Week two of the campaign got its highest amount of coverage at 4.1% of all media, newspapers and television, with every other week being much less. I really look forward to trying to explain to my kid in future years why we did want to stop the flooding, but actually it was more important chatting about business and how they could pay less tax, because otherwise how will all those CEOs be able to afford a helicopter to higher ground, hmm? The third is just how little coverage the Lib Dems got from week one, getting an eighth of TV coverage in week one and less since, and even less in newspaper coverage, beneath the Brexit party. And there is something to be said for the fact that more coverage Joe Swinson gets, the less people seem to like her, so maybe this was beneficial, but it does show how unbalanced the actual coverage is. I mean, how can you attain votes if voters don't even know you're there or what any of your policies are? Women's voices also only accounted for a third of all quotation in TV and a fifth in press, with only four of the top 20 most covered politicians being female. When during the campaign Boris Johnson laughably said he vowed to help women reach their full potential, he could have started by shutting up and letting more female members of his party get a word in. The last finding is how disproportionately negative the coverage of Labour policies has been. Loughborough Uni made a chart where if an item was focused on positive matters for a party, it scored a plus one, negatively a minus one. Things with no clear evaluation scored a zero. In the first four weeks, and this is in the unweighted calculations, Labour scored a minus 95, a minus 105, a minus 106 and a minus 110. In comparison, the Conservatives scored 5, minus 12, minus 17 and a minus 38. And the Lib Dems scored minus 15, 6, minus 11 and minus 8. So it's not even just how negative the press has been about Labour, but the sheer volume of it that they've got. It also shows just how weighted towards two parties it's all been, with very little focus on anyone except Labour and the Conservatives, with both getting 90% of appearances in week four. Now, I'm not going to assume exactly how that affects people, as I don't have all the evidence, but if all the main coverage tells you there's only two parties to vote for and one of them's really terrible, you do wonder if the less discerning or those with less time to be discerning will say, oh well, I guess I'd better vote for what happened if Lassie got goiter and someone shaved him a lot. Anyway, have a look at the reports for yourself on the Loughborough University General Election website that will pop in the pod blurb, and they are at L-B-O-R-O-C-R-C-C. Overall, I think it really raises questions about media balance, which we've always known hasn't really existed, but sometimes it's nice to see it in the facts and tables like someone sensible and clever has said it, and I don't just need to grab a tinfoil hat. So look, what else can I say that I haven't said over all these podcasts for weeks and weeks and weeks and that you're not already reading if you're interested and ignoring if you're not? Well, except maybe... Do you have opinions? No, I think they taste bad. I think that you mean onions. Yes, they're disgusting. Hey, that's an opinion. Hooray for onions. Hooray for onions. Yeah, I just thought maybe it's handy sometimes to say straight out what I think without any jokes in it and stuff. Uh, and you've probably already, you've skipped past it, haven't you? You've already skipped past it. 
I found this election really depressing. I found it really depressing having to write about it and read about it. And, you know, it's merely made me wonder if, as people say, ignorance is bliss, though, of course, how would they know? Everyone's been so warring and so tribal and uh, I found it really grounding to speak to people that aren't on social media and in real life and just can actually discuss their views. There's the odd few people uh, that I speak to on social media who've got different views to me but are quite happy to actually just discuss it uh, without getting all angry or saying that because you think one thing you're definitely one thing. Um, And I think that's quite depressing. Uh, But this whole thing has been... uh, Horrible, You know, the whole election's been full of lying and lying being mainstream and being made to be okay is really concerning. It's a lot like the US and and often people say the UK is just behind the US in a lot of trends and it really feels with this election that very sadly we are. Uh, And I can only hope that it kind of results in maybe Twinkies coming through at least at some point so I can eat those to kind of, uh, you know, stave off depression. I think there's also a lot of uh, hysteria, you know, things like in that first couple of weeks when people were responding to Labour's claims of free broadband by going, that'll lead to gulags. And there's been a lot of that. There's been a lot of imagining the very, very worst that can possibly happen when the fact is we're nine years into some of the worst that can happen. There are people, as you've heard on many of the interviews in this show, people who have had to sell all their kitchen appliances in order to pay for the heating, you know, terrible things like that. There are carers who can't afford to care for their person they're caring for because they've got absolutely no support and and no finances themselves and no space for their own mental health and well-being uh you know the the climate is in an absolutely terrifying situation and time is running out and has sort of really run out to do anything good about it uh, houses are fucked schools are fucked hospitals are fucked and and you know i started this podcast three years ago uh, because i know nothing about politics and i want to because it affects my life all the time and it's affected my friends it's affected my family and it's affected people around me um you know it, it does uh, and and i thought that by starting this podcast i get to talk to people i get to teach myself uh and i'd get to talk about it in a way that wasn't patronising but also wasn't just little vox pops and, and minutes that don't really explain anything and I feel like one of the major things I've learned over the past few years is, is time and time again that um, you know what's happening now isn't working that's that's what nearly everybody <laughs> I've interviewed has said this isn't working and people really are suffering and you might not see it and maybe you don't directly know someone um, and that's maybe because you're in your own little bubble like I am really and, and you don't notice it but even Today, I, I went to the uh, did a gig today. I was supporting one of the Frankie Boyle gigs, which was lovely. On the journey there, I saw 11 homeless people. That's walking from my house, a 10-minute walk to the tube station, getting on a few tube stops, getting out the tube stop, walking 10 minutes to the venue. 11 homeless people in that time, and that's depressing. And, and I remember when I was a kid seeing Cardboard City uh, in London um, in the 80s, uh, caused by Margaret Thatcher, and being so disturbed that that could ever happen to people, that people could ever be in that situation, uh, having to huddle together for warmth being denied somewhere decent to live and and it depressed me then and it depresses me now and it's back and and the fact that the conservatives can say things like oh well that's labor's fault the last labor government even that was a decade ago and they improved homelessness and and yet we are sort of just dredged in these absolute bullshit lies and people that know better could look them up could look up whether these things are facts or or not uh, but instead we're all getting taken over by headlines we're all getting taken over on point scoring on social media and i sort of feel like nobody's taking a breath and thinking does that really make sense is that really what's going to happen and and maybe think about what's actually already happened and how terrible some of the things are um the other thing i should say my views are, are nuanced um i you know I'm, I'm left wing but i love trainers disneyland and that one time i flew on business class was properly legendary um most people i speak to are nuanced most people are left wing and right wing with little bits um you know or centrist in little bits everyone's got different views about different things based on their life and their experiences and how they like being no one's that simple you know there there are the right and the left but I very rarely meet people who are definitely under that definition. Um, this election, I mean, I, you probably know uh, I'm going to vote Labour. Um, I've probably made it quite blatant on this show. Uh, and I'm doing that for a number of reasons. One is that in my area, um, they are the main contenders to the Conservatives. We've got a Conservative MP who is fucking awful and I'd like him to go. Um, the other reason uh, is that, you know... I like what they're I like what they're proposing in their manifesto. I do. I think it we need a genuine change. I think in my weird idealist head, we've had conservatives for nine years, 
I feel like we need something different. In my head, maybe we always want a bit of balance, a bit of this, a bit of that, uh, until society finds a way to live together with some sort of different ideology. That'll never happen. I, my dream is uh, that Danish programme, Borgen, which I've been told is a centrist-like dream, but I am not don't really consider myself a centrist. But in Borgen, the Danish government had a mix where uh, everyone in the parliament was from different parties depending on their specialist ways. I mean, that's actually what they do in Denmark and in Scandinavian countries because they've got proper representational um, voting. Uh, and, you know, if we had that here, we could have a Green Party MP for environment and whatever the other parties specialise in in their other thing. I, I genuinely don't know. Lib Dems on, uh, on terrible memes? But, uh, no, I don't know. I've really got no idea. Um, you know, that's that's the idea. We've got a terrible voting system. We've got a two-party race, as per always. Um how do you get rid of the absolute worst thing? You vote for the next thing, whether you like it or not. I don't like the idea of holding my nose, but then I've held my nose most years for a lot of things that I didn't like. We've got to do it. Um, and obviously, I know, and I'm fully aware there are people listening to this going, but Labour anti-Semitic, and there's loads of issues, and it's fucking depressing, and uh, I, uh, I I think it's horrible, and I'm glad you know that people are standing up to it and i'm glad that people are making noise about it and they need to and maybe i've got a very blinkered view and i'm fully happy to be called naive firstly uh this sounds terribly like all my best friends are racist my my dad's jewish and his side of the family is jewish they're all voting labor um and they're far more scared by a very right-wing government um and you know it'd be silly of me not to be influenced by my family especially when i agree with them um but also as I said, you know, you won't get this from social media, but most activists I meet that are from Labour are genuinely keen to tackle it in some way or another, whether or not the leadership are, whether or not other people in the party are. Most people are, and I don't get that same feeling from, you know, say the Conservatives who just seem to be more happy to weaponise it and, and, and have a go at people about it. And I, I think if I'm going to promote one of the racist parties or, or try and get one, you know, get one in power over the other, I'd prefer the one that's going to try. Hey, that's probably bullshit. You can have a go at me when you see me. Uh, I'm sure you will, because that's all we do now. We don't sit and listen to each other's opinions. We just tell each other we're wrong. And of course, the planet's on fire and really we should be sorting that shit out first. All of this is very depressing. So what I'd say to you is, look, look, whatever happens, uh, don't be a dick. Don't be a dick about it. Think about it. Read shit. Don't be a dick. Think about other people and... Um, you know, whatever happens, if it's really bad on the plus side, I'll have a fuckload of jokes uh, for this show. Hey, hey, I mean, unless this is banned, uh, it's probably it's probably going to get banned, isn't it? And look, hey, I might be wrong. I honestly don't know if I'm right about anything. I just try and put all these things together. I spend far more time worrying about it than uh, I probably should. Uh, and most people probably get on with their lives far more. Um, but I don't know. I never know if I've got anything right. I spend a lot of days just amazed that I haven't fallen in a well or I haven't poisoned myself with dinner uh, and just about scraping through. So I'm always happy to learn why. Why I should have a different opinion. Um, that's just mine. One of the things I've really noticed this election is just that, you know, there's been weird reactions to really sensible policies <laughs> of Labour's, like free broadband will lead to gulags, you know, <laughs> bonkers. Um, and, and, and the one this week of sort of people going, he wants to plant lots of trees. And you sort of think, well, actually, if you sat down with someone, and, and I have sort of said to people, well, we all like trees and we would all like more trees and it'd make the air cleaner and <laughs> everyone wants everything greener. And in fact, the Conservatives originally were about conserving and countryside and having a greener, you know, <laughs> that was the, the idea. And, you know, is there something about kind of breaking breaking through the kind of headlines and speaking to people realistically a bit more yeah totally and uh, yeah I think you know almost whatever Labour proposed you would get this in the sort of official media establishment political discourse like oh this is a mad idea um you know and I think it's important to remember you know we had that even with Ed, Ed Miliband right when he was proposing energy price caps it was all red ed and all the rest of it um and and now the conservatives under Theresa May were proposing energy price caps because that was the moderate alternative to Corbyn's mad policy of renationalizing the energy system right so I think that's testament to how it is possible to kind of shift to shift the debate by kind of taking a bold radical position and the reason Corbyn was able to do that on public ownership is because actually public ownership remains overwhelmingly popular and it's a really interesting example of where there's been this gulf between the sort of official political media common sense about what what makes sense and what's mad and what's not and what ordinary people actually think and actually want. It's one of the amazing contracts that neoliberalism has managed to pull off. It's like making ideas like public ownership unthinkable for a generation, despite the fact that like 70, 80% of the public um, were still in favour of them. And so that I think is 
Corbynism's secret weapon, right, is the ability of, to get hundreds of thousands of people out on the doorstep, just speaking to people on a person to person basis, right? Well, you know, yeah, okay, maybe, um, you know, maybe the media is telling us that this idea is mad, but you don't think it's mad. I don't think it's mad. We both know that it would make our lives better. Um, and it's just getting past this kind of idea that things aren't possible or that they're not feasible, which is always the weapon of the right against ideas that they know that people would instinctively think are good is to just say, oh, yeah, you might want that nice thing, but you can't have it. Um, and then that, I think, is, is the more difficult conversation to, to have with people um, to try and persuade them and, and point to examples of other countries that do do these things um, to show that it is possible. You know, a lot of critics have said, well, anyone but Corbyn could beat Johnson hands down. You know, any other Labour person would would just have smashed this election out the sky and been ahead in the polls and um i mean is there any truth in that do you think and i mean because as, as far as i sort of understand it you know centrist candidates went up against <laughs> corbyn and and failed massively with the membership and and it doesn't feel like that sort of politics is particularly popular anymore yeah absolutely i mean this like this argument frustrates me no end right because the the kind of people that are saying this are the same kind of people who thought Brexit could never happen, who thought that Labour were going to lose catastrophically in 2017. Um, and, you know, it's not obvious that they've rethought any aspect of their worldview in response to being repeatedly proved wrong by events. So why why would anyone listen to them this time around, right? And like you say, you know, we, the only time in recent years that we've actually had a Tory majority was under Ed Miliband, who I personally think has really good politics, but I think was very badly advised by the people around him that he needed to, you know, tone down his radicalism and be more centrist and more boring. Um, you know, I don't think that's what people want. Is it because when people say centrism, I mean, for a start, what does that even mean? I think in this context, what it really means is people who want things to go back to the way things were before, um, the way they were before Brexit, the way they were before the financial crisis. It's this kind of continuity remain. Oh, like if only people hadn't voted for Brexit, everything would be fine. And I think that just massively misses the point that the whole reason Brexit happened was that as far as millions of people across this country were concerned, things very much were not fine, right? There's an arrogance about this idea that, you know, maybe things were fine for you, but for lots of people, the system really wasn't working. And that's why they voted for Brexit. That's why they're turning to, you know, right-wing populists like Nigel Farage. And if the left doesn't offer them an alternative and offer them a more positive vision of radical change, then those right-wing populists are going to win. So I think it's not just arrogant and annoying. It's actually incredibly dangerous, this kind of, this continuity centrist politics, because, if we don't have radical left-wing change, then but for me, that I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the alternative is fascism. And, you know, these these establishment centrist politicians, they're convinced that they're the only ones that understand how politics work. But actually, I think that Jeremy Corbyn and the movement behind him understands what is happening in the world right now quite a lot better than they do. So that's the end of my rant about centrists. <laughs> No, 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 it's great. And, and I, sort of, I was explaining something the other day, I don't know who else would have got Stormzy backing them and, and kind of and people like that who, who, who appeal to an entirely different, uh, you know, age range and uh, area of society that any other leaders uh, appeal to, I think. Um, but um, anyway, uh, let's... Uh, discuss uh, uh, hopefully not a more it's at the moment according to the polls uh the conservatives are going to win with a majority um assuming that happens um what should people on the left do in terms of well i mean a dealing with it uh and then also you know trying to bring people back around to to making a left-wing government viable again next time yeah around. i mean firstly cry obviously um yeah yeah i mean yeah. we we've both got small babies haven't we i'm trying not to think about how awful it's going to be if the tories get returned to power to be honest i'm genuinely quite fearful for the country that my baby is going to spend the next five years growing up in um if that happens but i think you know somehow we've all got to pick ourselves up right we can't wallow in that for too long if that's the outcome um because i think there is, there is a real sort of risk of burnout that everyone's thrown everything into this campaign and then if the outcome is bad, we will all just want to hole up and cry forever. And actually, it's going to be more important than ever that we stay mobilised in that contest, not least to kind of um, to help and provide solidarity with people who are going to be worst affected by that, including people of colour, right? Because that, that result would massively embolden racist and xenophobic forces on the far right. There are a lot of people in this country who would feel a hell of a lot less safe 
um, on December the 13th, if that result came about. And I think it's incumbent to anyone on the left to think about how they can kind of help to protect those communities and provide solidarity with them. I think in terms of making a left-wing government still viable, I think what is really important is there will then be a battle for the narrative as to why that result came about if Labour are to lose, right? Um, And there will be those, as we've just been talking about, who will say, oh, well, if only we'd had a centrist candidate and the problem was that Corbyn was too left-wing and blah, 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 blah. Um, And I think it's incumbent and those who don't believe that's the case would be to provide a sort of counter-narrative. You know, and I actually think the the Brexit party's decision not to stand against the Tories has been hugely consequential in this election. And that's something that I'm quite worried about. Um, You know, obviously Brexit um, is a huge kind of issue and a huge dividing line that's complicating this election. I think we need to kind of be clear that um, the sort of left-wing economic policies like return to public ownership and all the rest of it that Corbyn is advocating are overwhelmingly popular. Um, you know, it was accepted after 2017 that they were widely responsible for Labour doing much better than everybody thought. Um, that hasn't changed. And I think that's that's the thing to remember is that there is a lot of things that are in the bank, right? Like we, we have changed the political common sense Um, We've brought policies into the mainstream that were on the margins. We've mobilised more people to go door knocking, I think, than than I can ever remember for any political party in my lifetime. Um, And if the result isn't what we want, then, you know, that doesn't stop it. It intensifies. You've mentioned that, uh, you know, we can't be too sad for very long and we've got to get up and tackle it. But how can people stop being disillusioned? How do we get out of that feeling? What are your tips for that? Um, Yeah, this is something that I'm thinking about a lot because I do have a slight worry if the result doesn't go well that... Um, this could almost be for kind of for young people today. <laughs> young people, I'm not young anymore. It's very sad. Um, how how Iraq was for my generation, right? Where we, there's this sort of feeling of we mobilised in our hundreds of thousands. We went out on the street, we gave it everything and we still lost. And I think it's really important that um, for this generation and for this movement, if the result doesn't go well, that we don't get a situation like happened after Iraq where everybody just kind of becomes completely demobilized and disillusioned. And I think what's important to remember and why this is kind of different from Iraq is that this is about generational systemic change. And history tells us that that isn't a one shot thing. It's not about one election or one party or one leader. And I think what's really clear at the moment is that the previous system is breaking down and one way or another, it's going to have to be replaced. We obviously hope that we're in like a 1940s moment where it's about to be replaced by um, a, you know, a radical left-wing alternative. It's still possible that we're in a 1930s moment and that we're going to have to go through a horrible period of far-right radicalism before we get to those sunny uplands. But I still genuinely believe that the sunny uplands will come <laughs> eventually. Um, and I think, you know, Chile is a really good example of this as well. In the 1970s, um, it was the original sort of laboratory for neoliberalism. And it's not very w- widely known. That actually, the first time that they tried to privatise everything in Chile, it was such a catastrophic failure um, that critics used to laugh about the um, uh, the Chicago road to socialism, um, which is a reference to these kind of Chicago school policies and how they'd achieved the exact opposite of what they intended. So I think time and time again, history shows us that these kind of system changes, they don't happen overnight. It's not a one shot thing. And if things don't go as we want, we do just need to pick ourselves up and carry on and have confidence that we're on the right side of history eventually. Okay, so uh, last question, uh, which is what I ask all the guests on this podcast, which is simply that uh, apart from yourself uh, and your book and your Twitter, um, who else would you recommend that listeners follow or read up on um, either, you know, to sort of uh, prepare for uh, the possibilities of a left wing government or deal with the lack of one? Um, so, I mean, you could obviously follow my co-author, Joe Guinan. Um, that's, uh, on Twitter, he's Joe C. Guinan, which is G-U-I-N-A-N, I think. Um, I think Gary Young is really one of the most interesting commentators, um, writing about politics today. I would really recommend reading anything that he's writing. Um, and also Ellie Mayo Hagen. Um, I think is yeah really intelligent commentator from a kind of Corbynite, vaguely Corbynite perspective um, on what might be about to happen. Um, so yeah, they would be probably my main tips. Oh, sorry, and one other, sorry, um, I, we can do the whole bit again if you want, because maybe otherwise. Okay, because people have probably heard of most of those apart from Joe, but um, 
another person who I think is really insightful um, on issues around the politics around Jeremy Corbyn is um, Jeremy Gilbert, who's Jem Gilbert, I believe, on Twitter. Um, so, yeah, for anyone who's interested in what Corbynism is, what it means and how it might play out, regardless of what the result is, um, he's really worth a follow. Thanks to Christine for that. You can find her on Twitter at Oefling, which is O-E-U-F-L-I-N-G. Um, she didn't tell me a story why it was that. I can't remember. Uh, and her website is at christineberry.net. Christine's book is called People Get Ready, Preparing for a Corbyn Government, which she co-authored with Joe Guinan, and is available at all of them book places. Though if you go to orbooks.com, then they're currently selling it at a small discount. Even if the title isn't relevant after Friday, um, as you've heard, the content and what it means to be in a different political system to the one that we've been in for quite some years now um, is highly worth thinking about. Don't forget that if you have someone you think I should interview on a future episode or a subject that I should interview someone about, please do drop me a line at the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, the at Parpolbro Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, or by emailing me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or maybe just leak it on Reddit and five months later a political party may notice and tell me about it before journalists warn me that it might actually be Russian interference because they don't know how the internet works and I have to ignore it. As always, it's probably just best to email me. And that's it for this week's podcast. Good luck out there on Thursday, and I shall be thinking of you all as I cradle my whiskey and shout at the television at 3am in a way that won't wake my daughter up, even though she'll wake up ten minutes later, because she always does. Don't forget to tell people about this goddamn noise thing. Donate to the Kofi and Patreon and review all of it on all of your products. Thanks, as always, to Acast, my brother, the last skeptic, for all the music, and whose new album, See You in the Next Life, is out now, and to Cat Day for all the linear liner notes. And, of course, to you for sticking with the show throughout three bloody years. Three bloody years. This will be back next week, but also probably on Friday for a brief brain vomit, and potentially, depending on how much whiskey I've needed to drink throughout the election, a real one. Bye! Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.